And the wise men, being warned, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. One of the most astonishing things about the person of Jesus Christ is that he has two complete natures. He is the only person in all of creation to whom this can be said. Angels have an angel nature. God has a divine nature. Human beings have a human nature. Nobody, from God to man, from angels to antelope, have more than one nature, except for Jesus Christ. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in bodily form. Jesus, the, the man Christ Jesus, born in Bethlehem to Mary, that person has two full natures. The nature of God and the nature of man. Now, of course, speaking of his divinity, his divinity did not begin. The person of Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem when he was born. It did not begin in Mary's womb. Jesus has always been the eternal son of God, stretching back into eternity past. The image of God, the image of the Father, the son of God, the eternal, eternally begotten son of God. That's Jesus our Savior, the second person of the Trinity, from eternity past God. But at his incarnation, the Son of God takes on a human nature. This is what it means in Philippians when it says, though, though he had equality with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When it says there in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself, it's not speaking that he set aside his divine nature. This is a subtraction by addition. He didn't set it aside. He added to it a human nature. And so there's certain limitations that go with being human. Namely, he's in a body. He becomes localized. He will be a baby. He will have all of the human needs and all of the human dependencies and all the human weaknesses. Those that are truly human are his at that point. And so the fullness of God, in a sense, is veiled behind his human nature. But the more you think about the two natures of Jesus Christ, the more minds rattling it gets in that neither one of the... Two natures cancel out the other. Jesus' humanity never pushes out his deity, as if that were possible. But more remarkable is that his deity never eclipses his humanity. When you look at Jesus, his humanity is always there in the Gospels. And I think the best way to understand this is that Jesus can operate between his human and his divine nature freely. Picture living on a two-story house. You can go to the second story or you can go on the, the ground floor. You can move back and forth between them. I th think that's a helpful way to consider the way Jesus avails himself of his two natures. Sometimes his deity is on display and sometimes his humanity is on display. But they don't mix. Because if you mix the two, his humanity would evaporate. You know, one drop of deity would swallow humanity. And so they don't mix. 
They're united in perfect harmony in the person of Jesus Christ. God in human flesh. Truly God, truly man. So that when he is tempted, he doesn't rely upon his deity to avoid temptation. He can be fully tempted like we are. So that when he's rejected by other people and betrayed by his friends, he doesn't fall back on his deity, so to speak. No, he experiences those rejections and those trials just as we do. When he is hungry, of course, it's within the prerogative of God to create food. This is what God does. He spoke the universe into existence. He could surely create himself food while he's fasting in the wilderness. But he does not do that. He stays operating in his human nature. When the disciples want to know the hour of his second coming, of course God knows the hour of his second coming, but he does not in that sense operate out of his deity to solve the riddle of mankind. (laughs) He remains operating in his human nature and says no one except the Father in heaven knows that and those to whom he's pleased to reveal himself to. So both of the natures are fully on display in ways that we can barely understands. When he walks on the water, the, the wind he stills the storm. The wind and the waves know his voice. They submit to God. And then he is asleep on the boat. <laughs> Both of his natures always on full display. And this is one of those passages this morning in Matthew chapter 2 that displays both of these natures in such a powerful way. This is a, a typical Christmas story here, the flight to Egypt. The, we're familiar with it. We act it out in our kids' manger scenes probably. And we're, we're aware of this story that Joseph is visited by the angel and then told to run with Jesus into Egypt where he stays until Herod dies. Jesus was not raised in Egypt. Herod historians say, likely died around 4 AD. So Jesus could have been in Egypt as much as two years, perhaps, as little as a few months. We don't know. It was a short period of time that he went to Egypt. But in this story, this is a very familiar story, I hope to kind of peel back a couple layers of this and show you how these two natures of God are on full display. And the best way to begin is by seeing how God protects his son protects Jesus to prove his humanity. How God protects Jesus to prove his humanity. It begins in verse 12 when the wise men, the kings that had come delivering gifts to Jesus, uh, gold and frankincense and myrrh gold to represent Jesus' kingship, the frankincense to represent his priestly office, the myrrh to represent his humanity, that he would die and be buried. That's what's represented by those gifts, these These magi, these uh, wise men or kings, every one of you them, they were in the business of recognizing kings. In the ancient Near East, you became a king when they recognized you as king. They had journeyed far, as the song says, to recognize Jesus as king. They announced that he was king. They told Herod that he was the rightful king. Everybody knew what they were doing there. They came and they worshipped him and presented Jesus the gifts. And then verse 12, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. This is finishing off something that was brought up earlier in chapter 2, verse 7, that Herod had summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, diligently search for their child. And when you find him, bring me word so that I also can go worship him. Never believe a Herod. Never believe a Herod. He tells the wise men, go find Jesus, let me know, because I want to come worship him too, just like you. Come on. Well, the wise men apparently didn't 
necessarily see through Herod's ruse and his deception. And so they are visited in a dream. God reveals to them in a dream, do not go back to Herod. Do not let Herod know. And so they departed to their own country by another way. From Bethlehem, there's not a lot of ways out. It's the mountainous region right there. You could dodge back out towards the Mediterranean and go towards Egypt that way or go back up north towards Galilee that way to get away and around Jerusalem. That would have been highly visible. And perhaps the wise men went that way. But the wise men had an entourage. Remember, this was a noticeable arrival. A crew from Persia rolling in to announce the new king of of Israel. This did not happen subtly somewhere. There's really no way for these guys to sneak out. (laughs) But they go a different way to at least give Joseph a fighting chance here. If they go a different way without going back through Jerusalem, perhaps Herod won't hear that they are breaking their, their pact with him. Remember Herod had sought assurances from them. They would come let him know when they found Jesus. And if he gets the rumor, hey, we saw them, you know, heading up towards Jaffa. <laughs> we, we saw them dodging out towards Egypt. Herod would think he was betrayed and would go looking for Jesus himself. And so they go a different way. But when they had departed, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And now Joseph also has a dream. This time it's an angelic revelation and says, take your child and flee to Egypt. Again, from Bethlehem, the best way to go to Egypt would be back through Jerusalem and then up towards Jericho or back towards Jerusalem and down towards the Mediterranean. They go a different way, likely over the the Engedi Hills there from Bethlehem. You can get out to the Dead Sea if you go over the hills. There's no roads that way. There's no paths that way. You would be going through the desert and the scrub and the the brush that is out there. This is not an easily traveled way. There might be shepherds out there. They do it at night. It would likely take 8 to 12 hours to go that way and to crest the, the mountains, another 3 or 4 hours to get down towards the Dead Sea and then to follow that down towards Egypt is the way they would have gone. They would have not seen anybody that way. And so they escaped off to Egypt. Now I say this proves his humanity for a couple reasons. If there's one thing that's true about God and there's one thing that's true about God... <laughs> He doesn't need anybody to protect him. If your God needs a security detail, you're worshiping the wrong God. (laughs) You remember Dagon when the idol was put in front of the Ark of the Covenant and Dagon fell and broke into pieces and all the king's horses and all the king's men had to duct tape him back together again. (laughs) Propped him back up to worship. It should dawn on you if your God requires duct tape and security to make sure the Ark of the Covenant doesn't beat him up. Change gods. (laughs) Here Jesus, God clothed in human flesh, needs help. He needs people to protect him. He needs to be rescued. Jesus, certainly in his divinity, possessing omniscience, would know the evil plot that is afoot, would know that Herod is out to murder him. Certainly in his divinity, he would have that knowledge even as a child. And yet, as I said, he does not access his divinity in a way that mitigates or eliminates or diminishes his humanity. And so for the entirety of this, he is a dependent baby. He can't walk. He can't fight. He can't grab a sword and take on Herod himself. He's a baby because he is fully man and truly man. 
And so he's dependent. Even the Savior in his humanity is dependent upon other people to protect him and to help him. He's dependent upon Mary to raise him and feed him. He's dependent upon Joseph to lead them and to have the revelation and say, we've got to get out of here. He's dependent upon, in that sense, his parents to watch out for his life or he will die. And in this case, there's somebody who actually wants to murder him, even as a baby. And so he needs the help of his parents to even live another day. This is fully displaying his Humanity, But I don't want to skip over the angels. The fact that he is ministered to by angels is another powerful evidence of his, of his humanity. God does not need angels to minister to God. Angels worship God. Angels don't help God. Angels are worshipers. Now God dispatches angels not to help God. God dispatches angels so that angels can help people. Angels become ministering servants to people. They serve us. And this goes all the way back to creation. God made the massive universe and all of its glory and majesty. He made galaxies without numbers, stars without numbers. When you think of the incredible beauty of the created universe, it's staggering and breathtaking. Not an infinite amount of stars, but apparently an apparent infinite amount of stars. On top of that, countless galaxies. Now, God rules them all through his providence and scientific laws that regulate the ongoings of the, the galaxies that they rotate and gravity and the strong and weak nuclear forces combine to create the atomic pressure that makes the universe go round and display the wonderful providence and mercy of God. And yet, despite all of that wonder and vastness of the universe, God sets his affection on human beings on earth. This is described in Psalm 8. Let me put it on the screen for you. This is the psalmist saying, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, and in other words, everything God has made, the moon and the stars, plural, all the practically infinite amount of stars that God has set in place, the psalmist has this question. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? In all the great wonders of the universe, What is it about human beings that God says, I am pleased to focus here? God rules the universe through his providence, but he rules our world more particularly than that. He sets his affection upon us. He knows the stars by name, but he knows us in a more intimate way by name. He orchestrates all of history to in a sense, play out on the stage of this earth, not on the stage of the numerous galaxies. What is it about mankind that draws God's attention? Angels and antelopes aren't made in the image of God, but people are. Why does he care to have his image dwell with us? That's the great question. And the psalmist is not the first person to ask that question. The first to ask that question were the angels. The angels look at the wonderful universe and they look at the beauty of the earth and the angels want to rule the earth. They want to have dominion over the earth. They want authority on the earth. And instead of giving the earth to angels, God gives the earth to Adam. Dirty, literally, he's made from dirt. Adam. (laughs) It's stunning. 
And the psalmist says, you have made him, speaking of Adam and the son of man, all of mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings. We are less than angels. Angels can fly, which is nice. Angels don't die, which is nicer. (laughs) We're just here and we die. And yet we get dominion on the earth. We get to be little gods on the earth. The angels wanted that. Satan, of course, wanted that. He wanted to be like God. He wanted dominion on the earth. And when God hands it over to Adam, that was a bridge too far for the devil. And the devil takes out his hostility and his hatred on Adam. And it remains this divide to this day. The angels are split now. Between two-thirds of the angels that remain loyal to God and the third of the angels that rebelled against God and are taking out their hatred of God on mankind. Listen, this is why demons, the fallen angels, hate people. They don't just hate Christians. They have a hatred of all people. They lie and they murder and they deceive people. They harm people because they hate them because people were given dominion on the earth. They were made in the image of God. They have dominion on the earth. And so the psalmist says, you've made us lower than the heavenly beings and yet you've crowned us with glory and honor. So the good angels, those that obey God, express their obedience to God. Listen carefully. The good angels, those that remain obedient to God, express their obedience to God by serving people. They minister to us. That's that's, That's why people will be judging angels, Paul says. When we die, one of our functions in the next life will be to judge angels because angels are supposed to be serving us. We get to run verdicts on them. God has given them over to us. You have given him, mankind, dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Mankind rules this world now and angels serve us. And angels continue to serve us. Paul writes that many of us have been ministered by angels unaware. Angels have interacted with us and we don't know. And so let me just help you out here. If you think that an angel has ministered to you, then that wasn't an angel. Do you know how I know? Because it says if an angel ministered to you, it did so, and you were unaware of it. So if you became aware of it, then that verse doesn't apply to your situation. Do you follow? (laughs) It's a a logical tight loop there, but it works. (laughs) Angels do serve people, though. They do minister to people, and you don't even know about it. You don't even know about it. But there are some times... When the veil gets pulled back, there are sometimes when people are made aware of it and they are specific redemptive events like the giving of the law. The angels were attending to the giving of the law to Moses. There were angels there. Jacob, who started the nation Israel, was wrestling with the angel of the Lord and saw the ladder with the angels moving up and down. And then in the life of Christ, of course, you're seeing angels all over the place. Angels attend to him at his birth. They attend to him at his birth. It was an angel who told Joseph, take Mary as your wife, Matthew 1, verse 20. It was an angel that told Mary she would be pregnant. That's Luke 1, verse 35. It was an angel that told Zechariah that his wife, Elizabeth, would have a child. That's Luke 1, verse 11. It was an angel who made Zechariah mute when he didn't believe it. It was an angel that appeared to the shepherds when Jesus was born in Luke 2, verse 9. And at key moments of his humanity... Angels minister to Jesus when he is tempted in the wilderness. Again, he resists temptation, displaying his humanity. 
and angels minister to him. He does not create food for himself and angels minister to him. He's praying in the garden, sweating drops of blood. His friends are asleep. He's been betrayed by one of his disciples and apostles. He will be arrested and handed over to death. And the sins of mankind are being imputed to him. And in that moment, he is weak. That would be his weakest moment in the garden. Crying out to God and sweating big drops of anguish. And it's at that moment, Luke says, an angel ministered to him. Luke 22, verse 43. And then at the end of his life, at his resurrection, of course, it's an angel that comes and rolls the stone away from his grave. Not so that Jesus can get out, but so the ladies can get in. The angels minister to him at his birth, in his temptation, in his despair, and in his resurrection. And so it's fitting at the start of Matthew's gospel in chapter 2 here, as you're introduced to Jesus, who was just born... After Jesus' birth, he's proclared, uh, declared to be a king. He's given gifts fitting a king. People are worshiping him. Other kings are worshiping him. And then angels are ministering to him in a very obvious way. This authenticates his humanity. It shows that he is in need of not just his parents' support, but also angelic support, angelic protection. There's a very practical application to this. I hope you see this. God could have protected Jesus in a number of ways. He could have killed Herod five minutes earlier. That would have done the trick. (laughs) But God chose not to protect Jesus by removing this trial from him. God chose to protect Jesus by taking him even into a different trial, in a further away trial. Listen, Joseph and Mary didn't get to go back to Nazareth and pack their bags. They didn't get to go back up to Galilee. They had to keep going. They came from east to west. They worked their way to Bethlehem for the birth of Christ and the census. They didn't get to go back and say goodbye to their family. They had to take off out of Israel and keep on going to Egypt. They would not have received this as a blessing. This was a trial to them. And you can even picture the temptation that would come in with a trial like that. Why isn't God answering my prayers? Why isn't We didn't sign up for this. God did this to us. Now we've got to leave our our land, leave our province, and go to Egypt. I think it's encouraging to us to remember that sometimes God protects his people through darkness, not from darkness. Sometimes God protects his people by leading them through difficulty, not by keeping them from difficulty. It doesn't say if Joseph knew that Herod was out to murder him. It doesn't seem like Joseph knew that because it's not until the death of Herod the angel tells him to come back. Joseph didn't really know all that was going on. And yet, him being forced to move to Egypt was God's way of protecting him from a different kind of trial, a worse kind of trial. I think that's helpful to remember. I know there's many in our congregation who are military that get transferred and moved all around and they don't know where they're being moved necessarily and they didn't exactly sign up for it. You know, you might list four or six places and you get sent to a place that was not on your list. Some of you might get sent to some, you know, crazy place like Kansas or something. Not all of you can get sent, not all of you can get sent to New Mexico. There's only so much (laughs) blessing and privilege out there. But you get sent to some not New Mexican place and you're wondering, like, why would God send me here? This isn't what we signed up for. 
And then you think, why isn't God listening to my prayers? I prayed for this not to happen and it's happening. Is God not hearing prayers? Is he forgetting about me? What is God doing? You don't even understand that God moving you somewhere is God actually protecting you from something else that you don't even know about. At least that's the case here with Joseph and it's the case with Joseph and Jesus and it's particularly the case with Joseph and Jesus displaying his humanity. And so I think this is given to us to, us to relate to. We relate to him and his humanity. That's fitting for us to do, and so it's fitting for us to take that lesson from that. It's a great point, I think, that God will protect Jesus and protect us while preserving us through our weaknesses, not from our weaknesses. Well, first, we see that God protects Jesus to prove his humanity. Secondly, we see that God directs Jesus to prove his deity. God directs Jesus to fully display his deity here. And you see in verse 15 that when Herod dies, again, it was a few years later, so Jesus was likely in Egypt for only a, a couple of years, maybe as short as a few months. This was all to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So the question Matthew is asking is why did Jesus have to get sent to Egypt for only a short period of time? Did God mess up the time schedule here? I mean, what is going on? Couldn't have God shifted him to Bethlehem to fulfill one prophecy? Couldn't he have shifted him back to Nazareth without the whole Egypt part? And the answer is no, God is doing something by sending him to Egypt. Namely, God is fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling what was spoken of by Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And this word fulfill is such a critical word that it was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. The word fulfill means to fill up from the inside. It means to, I think the best way, the best image I've heard of this is that, you know, you know, the connect the dot thing that kids will do, they you know, connect a dot and they draw a shape. And even when the dots are connected, you're like, oh, elephants maybe? <laughs> no, Dad, that's the United States. Okay, look like an elephant. <laughs> that's the Old Testament in this sense. The Old Testament lays out the series of dots and Jesus in the New Testament fills them in, colors them in. When the, the kids graduate from Connect the Dots, they're actually doing the coloring pages and you get a, a bright, vibrant picture. You're like, that's a herd of elephants. That's great. <laughs> this is what's happening here. The Old Testament gives you the outline and the New Testament fills it in. And it fills it in in a way that displays the deity of Jesus Christ. Now there's a... I read a book this week on typology. That's what theologians often call this, typology, by a guy named Roy Zuck. He was a professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Seminary, a very powerful author and godly man, a firm grasp of the scriptures. And Zuck lists 19 different types in the New Testament, 19 different types of things that are laid out in the Old Testament. So the dots are in the Old Testament, and the color is filled in in the New Testament. He comes up with 19 of them, and I think they're all powerful. The most obvious one, just to help you relate to this, um, I think it's the Passover lamb. You get the dots in the Old Testament that, that God's people are going to uh, need deliverance. Uh, they are going to have, they deserve death and the angel of death is coming to them and will, will pour out death on them. But instead they can put forward a lamb, a holy innocent lamb. The lamb is a substitute. The family lays hands on the lamb. Their sin and their guilt is transferred to the lamb. The lamb has his throat slit. The blood is placed on the doorpost. The angel of the Lord passes over the household that is sheltered by the blood of the Passover lamb and pours his wrath out on others instead. This is a type of Christ, of course. He is our substitute. He is sinless. He did not commit our sin, yet our sin is given to him. The wrath of God is owed for us. It is instead 
poured out on Jesus Christ is he fulfills the type of the Passover lamb. He is the, the true and better Passover lamb. And all the sacrificial system stops when it comes to Jesus Christ because he fulfilled it. And that's something we're familiar with. Jesus is called a type of Adam in the book of Romans. He's, you know, he's the true son of God in, in that sense. There's 19 of them, like I said. In this passage, this passage reveals Jesus as fulfilling the type of Israel. That he fulfills the type of Israel. He's the true and better Israel. He's the true and eternal son of God. Namely, he is God in human flesh. And I want to show you how this passage does this by going one level, I think, further back in time to understand how why God said, out of Egypt I called my son. Israel has had a long and unique relationship with Egypt. There's been no other nation like that in terms of a partnership with Israel. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In fact, this is not an obscure teaching of scripture. This is the main point of the second half of the book of Genesis. And so I just want to try to help you get your mind around the book of Genesis so you see how significant this is. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It shows you where everything important came from. Think of something important in life and it, Genesis explains how it came into the world. Genesis tells you where, why God created the world. Genesis tells you about creation. It tells you about marriage. Genesis teaches about children. It teaches about animals, where they came from, where the devil comes from, where sin comes from, where death comes from, where worship comes from, where sacrifices come from, where rain comes from, and the rainbow, of course, where languages come from, where cultures come from, why we have different food in the world and why it's so tasty, described in Genesis, where nations come from, where governments come from, where Israel comes from, where the covenant of salvation is revealed to Abraham and it will be his descendant that will be the seed, the savior. We're talking big things, languages described. I mean, big things in the world. Genesis is about where we got them from. It's a pretty big deal. At least the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is a bit of a story about where Isaac gets his wife. And it was a long walk. <laughs> And where Jacob gets his wife, which is an entertaining story, granted. I mean, remember he married the wrong person first and then has to work another seven years to get the right person. And so it's funny, right? If you can't read that story and laugh at Jacob marrying the wrong person, I can't help you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny story. And then his 12 sons and he wrestles with the angel and gets named Israel and his sons grow up and Joseph sold into slavery. I mean, that's the second half of the book. That doesn't sound nearly as significant as where marriage comes from or worship. But the significance of God directing the second half of the book of Genesis this way is to show you how God got Israel, the nation, to grow into a recognizable nation by placing them in Egypt. That's the pattern that is being drawn here. God is drawing a pattern. He's laying out the dots for you. So that when the Savior, the real true Son of God, the eternal Son of God, God in human flesh comes to earth, you will see, you'll be able to verify who he is because he fills in these dots that are being drawn. So if you remember Jacob, son of Isaac, himself had 12 sons. Remember the two wives, they have multiple sons each. He has a total of 12 sons who will become the nation Israel. Jacob's name is renamed to Israel. He becomes named Israel because his Sons will be Israel. He has a favored son, Joseph, who has dreams about his greatness and his prominence. 
And the other sons are kind of over Joseph's dreams and decide they're going to murder him. That's the plan. We can't stand this dreamer. Let's kill him. God spares Joseph's life by having him instead sold into slavery. Then he is carted off to Egypt. Through his time in Egypt, he has the miraculous ability to receive revelation through dreams, not even his dreams, other people's dreams. That elevates him to a position of power. He then uses his position of power with the Pharaoh to draw Israel into Egypt. Remember, they come to him looking for food without even knowing that it's him. Israel is drawn, really magnetized, like a gravitational pull by Joseph and his dream into Egypt, where they then prosper. They receive blessing and they receive protection and they grow while they are there. However, what was meant to be a place of rescue for them becomes a place of bondage for them. They were sent to Egypt to have their life spared. But when time goes on, they become enslaved. And so God rescues him. And this is this point where the scripture starts referring to Israel as God's son. God rescues his son Israel from Egypt by the Red Sea crossing, by bringing him out through the death of the firstborn, through the waters into the wilderness where they are tempted for 40 years and purified and then planted into the promised land. Now, when you're in the book of Genesis, it's worth asking the question, why did God do all of that if the story ends with them brought back into Israel anyway? <laughs> like, why do they have to walk all the way to Egypt? Why the whole thing with Abraham and Pharaoh's wife and Isaac trying to find his wife and Jacob finding his wives and all the story to get them into Egypt only for them to be brought back 400 years later anyway. Why not skip the middleman and just have them grow in Israel? One answer the Bible gives is that the people who lived in the land were not wicked enough to justify them being obliterated really by the Israelites. And so they had to let, they had to leave the cake in the oven, so to speak, for another 400 years. Let their wickedness bake through even more so that when they come back, the people that are there deserve to die. But that's not even necessarily a full answer because if that was the only answer, why didn't God just wait 400 years to call Abraham then? Or call somebody else? Why? God's the one with the timetable here. Why the whole Egypt scenario? And the answer is because it's setting up a pattern for us to see so that we can recognize who the Savior will be. Hebrews 11, verse 22, says that Joseph is known for his faith in two areas. He's known for his faith in believing in the Exodus, that God would deliver them out of Egypt, and wanting his bones brought back with him. He wanted to be buried in Israel. Joseph, in this sense, is demonstrating what will be true of Israel. Israel will be brought from the threat of murder through the intervention of a dream and a man named Joseph into Egypt where he will be protected. And then Israel will be rescued through the water and the wilderness and planted back into the land where they will be identified because of that experience as the true son of God. That's the point the Joseph story. And it should sound very familiar to you because that's exactly what we're reading in Matthew chapter 2, isn't it? That God spares the life of his true son by giving a man named Joseph a dream, spares him from murder through the power of that dream by causing him to flee into Egypt 
where the son will be protected and delivered by another dream and led out through the waters. And in Jesus' case, the water of baptism. And into the wilderness where he will be tempted, in Jesus' case, for 40 days instead of for 40 years. Where he will pass his temptation and be established in the land. The only time we see this pattern is not in the book of Genesis either. We see this pattern again and again. This becomes the pattern of Israel throughout their whole Old Testament history. Israel is growing in the land and their kings are apostate and their kings are worshiping idols. And so God is judging them. And so where do they go to get away from God's judgment? They run off to Egypt all the time. They're always leaving Israel. So much so that prophets keep rebuking them for it. Stop going to Egypt, the prophets tell them. Instead, repent from your sin rather than move to Egypt. Nevertheless, the time is coming, God tells them, when I will rescue you from Egypt and I will bring my true son back to Israel. Oh, Israel was so tempted to trust in Egypt all the time they wanted to trust in Egypt. And who is Egypt? Why do they trust in Egypt instead of God? Here's a very humorous verse about this. I think it's funny. Jeremiah 46, verse 20. Egypt is a beautiful heifer, but a biting horsefly from the north is going to come up on her. <laughs> oh, you think Egypt's going to help you? Notice that God is mocking their, their, uh, their source of strength. Do you think Egypt's going to help you? Oh, man, she is a good-looking cow, isn't she? What a good-looking cow that country is. Just wait until I bite her with a horsefly. Man, the Israelites are putting their hope in all the wrong places. Jeremiah kept telling them, please stop running to Egypt. Submit to God, surrender to the Assyrians, and take your exile like a man. Remember, Jeremiah even buys a piece of property, digs a hole, buries the deed to the property and stands on it and says, listen, we're going to exile, but I'll be back and I'll get this property. 70 years, pack your bags. And they don't go. They fight. So they're conquered by the Assyrians. They get a governor from the Assyrians. And remember what they do to that governor? This is how the book of Jeremiah ends. They murder the governor the Assyrians gave them. The whole time they wanted to stay. So finally God lets them stay and they murder the person God puts in charge of them. And you know what they do after they murder him? You get one guess. They run to Egypt. Yeah. That's, that's how the book of Jeremiah ends. It's such a sad ending. He spends his whole life telling him, please don't do it. Just submit to God. And the book ends with them murdering the person God gave them and then running off to Egypt. This is the people that Hosea was written to. And I want you to flip in your Bible because I want you to see this. Flip to Hosea chapter 10. It's page 756 in the Pew Bible. 756 in the Pew Bible of... You're using your own Bible and you have a hard time finding Hosea. Those minor prophets can run together. Find Daniel and then Hosea. Hosea chapter 10. This is a prophecy well before Jeremiah. It's a prophecy given to Israel. Israel being the northern ten tribes. Also called Ephraim. This is the tribe of Joseph. The northern part of Israel. They don't have Jerusalem and the northern ten tribes because they rejected Judah, they rejected God's king. So they built their own altars. They built their own temples. They built their two cows. They had one in the north and one in the south. And they worshipped cows as if that was Yahweh. That's these ten tribes. That's what happened to Joseph's people. Chapter 10 of Hosea verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine. <laughs> it yields its fruit. But the more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. That's not good here. Remember, they're not going back to Jerusalem. They're building their own altars because they don't recognize the line of David. 
as his country improved, he improved his pillars. So God's saying he's blessing these 10 tribes. He's blessing Israel. And what do they do with their blessing? They build more temples and they build more altars. God doesn't want their temples. He doesn't want their altars. This is hard for oftentimes Americans to understand because we often think God is pleased with religion. Oh, that person's so religious. It's the wrong religion, but they're so religious. That's good, right? Here God is saying, listen, I'm blessing you and you're hiding behind your religion, which is false. Yeah, nice temple. Too bad it's to a cow. Verse 2, their heart is false, God says. Now they must bear their guilt. Yahweh will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. And now they will say, we have no king, for we don't fear Yahweh. What can a king do for us? Do you see here, these ten tribes are rejecting their king. They reject the king who reigns on David's throne. They reject him. Now, of course, they have a king. This is happening under the, the reign of King Jeroboam in Israel. They have a king, but they don't want the right king. They don't want God as their king. They don't want the line of David as their king. And they say, we don't need that kind of king. What could he ever do for us? How arrogant is that? I don't need God. What could God do for me? All God would do is give me a king. I don't even want his king. And God says, verse 4, those are just blah, blah, blah. They just utter mere words. Empty oaths, they make covenants with each other. I mean, all these religious ceremonies they're having in Israel, they bind themselves to other with each other with covenants and oaths that don't mean anything. So judgment will spread like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the fields. Remember, we relate to that in Virginia, the way vines grow everywhere. And God says <laughs> judgment is going to grow through these ten tribes like poisonous weeds grow. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Avon, one of their two idols. They're, all, they're so religious, they're trembling in front of a cow. Its people mourn for it. So do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it in its glory, it's departed from them. There's this whole army of priests, a whole herd of priests, let's call them. <laughs> this herd of priests gathered around a cow and they're all trembling for it. <laughs> Verse 6, God says, you know what I'm going to do to your cow? I'm going to have it carried off to Assyria. You want to worship your cow and think the Egyptians will help you? Your cow is going to get carted off to Assyria as a tribute to their great king. You don't want a king? Your cow is going to go to their king. Ephraim will be put to shame. Israel will be ashamed of its idol. Samaria's king, Samaria's the ten tribes, their king will perish like a twig on the face of the waters. It's over, God tells them. Your cow's going away. Your king will die. You will be disciplined. Verse 11, Ephraim was a trained calf. This is the tribe of Joseph who came Ephraim. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. And I spared her fair neck. He's saying Israel's like a cow that's just rolling around on the dirt, rolling around on the ground like a pig. That's what Israel is, only she's a cow. I should have slid its neck, God says, but I spared it. But even that is not as much of a mercy as you think. I spared it because I'm going to put it a yoke on it, he says in verse 11. And I'm going to make Judah plow, the two tribes of the south. I'm going to make them plow. So he's saying I'm going to unite the 12 tribes again. Judah will be plowing and the cow will be Israel. Sow for yourselves righteousness, God says. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow grounds. For this is the time to seek Yahweh so he may come and rain righteousness upon you. He's telling him, you want mercy? Plow your field and grow mercy. Grow righteousness. Go, go, go home right now and grow righteousness in your house. You can't do that. You don't have seeds. Home Depot doesn't sell you righteousness seeds. 
there's no way for you to grow it. Instead, you have plowed iniquity, verse 13 says, and you've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies. You've trusted in your own way. Therefore, you're going to be destroyed. Verse 15, at dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off, Hosea says. You're going to lose your king. He'll die. You stay in Hosea. Don't leave there. But you know the story of Hosea, right? God tells Hosea, go marry an immoral woman, take her as your wife. And Hosea does. And after they marry, she sells herself into prostitution. She sells herself into sexual slavery. And God tells Hosea, go buy her back. He has to go pay for his wife. He doesn't have money. He doesn't have enough money. He has to sell the shirt on his back to buy his wife out of that kind of sexual slavery. Why? What lesson is this supposed to teach? And that's where Hosea 10 comes in. That God's own son, Israel, is like that adulterous, sinful, immoral woman, has sold itself into slavery, is threshing around on the floor like a cow, and God says, I should kill it. But instead, I'm going to show it mercy. I'm going to show it mercy by getting rid of their fake king and their fake priests and their fake idols. I'm going to get rid of all them, and I will replace them with a real king. This is chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, God says. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 4, I will lead them again with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. He's going to bring them back. Verse 8, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Verse 9, I'm God, not a man, the Holy One of Israel. I will not come in wrath. God says, I'm going to come save them. And then verse 11, when this happens, they will come like trembling birds from Egypt. <laughs> I'm going to bring them back. And you know how the story goes. They do get exiled to Egypt. They do get scattered through Babylon. Nehemiah, Ezra, Daniel do summon for them to come back. They are brought back, but they sin again. They keep sinning again. Under the Maccabean revolt, they sin again. You can flip back to Matthew chapter 2 now. A couple hundred years before Christ, they revolt against the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, and they flee to Egypt again. You know, some historians say when Matthew 2 was taking place, there were more Jews in Egypt than in Israel. There's probably a million Jews in Egypt during this time. They hated Herod the Great. They fled from Israel to get away from Herod the Great. Well, earlier, Cleopatra was ruling in, in Egypt and there was religious freedom. Alexandria was a city with religious freedom and the Jews flocked to those places. They had their whole religious system set up in exile. Many, many Jews there. And that's where Jesus goes. And then he's brought back. And Matthew says this was to show the fulfillment of the verse we just read. That God is going to redeem wicked Israel. He will redeem them. And he will redeem them by drawing his real son, his real eternal son, out of Egypt and planting them in the land. This is not a prophecy that can be fulfilled by a person. No matter how many times Israel brought by a normal human being, no matter how many times God brought Israel out of Egypt, they kept sinning again and again and again and again. 
Joseph rescues Israel by getting them into Egypt and they sin against him. They sin against Moses. They rebel against Yahweh in the wilderness. In the exile, they come back, they rebel again. They have to flee again. This happens over and over and over again. Every time God brings his son out of Egypt, they rebel again and they have to flee to Egypt again. And that all changes here in Matthew 2. Now God's real son has come. The real expression of his love. Not the kind of son that will have to be bought out of prostitution. Not the kind of son that is going to be worshiping at idols. A sinless son this one is. And the book of Matthew starts with the genealogy. It starts with the book of the genealogy. That word in Matthew 1 verse 1 is the word we use. We get the name Genesis from it. Matthew 1 begins with the genesis of Jesus Christ. And it shows you that Jesus is the true genesis. He's the true author of all things. He's the fulfillment of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is pointing towards him and it is fulfilled in him. The book of Genesis with the dotted lines, Jesus colors it in. No human can do that. No mere human can say the book of Genesis is about me and I fulfill it. This is his deity on full display. The book of Exodus launches Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt. God has called his son and then Egypt sends Israel off and Israel fails. They sin in the wilderness. Moses dies. They sin, they sin, they sin. Jesus is called out of Egypt. And he does not sin. He lives a life of obedience. He passes through the water of baptism. He goes to the wilderness and is tempted and resists. The Israelites were fed manna in the wilderness by God. Jesus creates manna to feed the people who are with him when he multiplies the fish and the loaves. The book of Exodus is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the true Israel. He fulfills what they could not. Leviticus is how the high priest comes about and how a sacrifice is accepted and the Passover lamb. Jesus fulfills those sacrifices. He becomes the real high priest. He fulfills the book of Leviticus. Numbers is the catalog of the 12 tribes as they come out of Egypt. Jesus creates a new people in the church, a new people for himself. He fulfills the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Jesus comes to us and he becomes a law to us. Christ is our law and gives us the law of Christ. Jesus fulfills everything in the book of Torah. It is written about him, those first five books, and he fulfills all of them. No human, merely human can say that. Now do you catch what's happening when Jesus reads the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads it and then he rolls it up and says, this scroll is fulfilled in your presence? He's saying the Bible is about him. He fills it up. This is his story. He went to Egypt to escape a murderer, just like the Israel in Exodus. He was led by a dream there, just like Joseph. He was delivered through a man named Joseph. He returned through water. He returned into the wilderness. He fed the masses in the wilderness. He fulfilled the law. And Israel was supposed to draw the nations to itself so they could learn about the Savior. And they did not. They did not care for the nations. They rejected God's missional calling on their life. Jesus, meanwhile, becomes a light to the nations. He is the true and better Israel. Now, our story doesn't even end with this first coming. If we had time, I would take you to Isaiah 19. You can just write this down and read it on your own some 
this week, if you're interested in this, Isaiah 19 is all about the future blessing that Egypt will get. Jesus is going to return to earth at his second coming, and he does not forget about Egypt. Isaiah 19, verse 19 is where it starts. The whole chapter is about Egypt, but at verse 19, it switches to the second coming of Christ. And when he comes back, do you understand this? When Jesus comes back to earth at his second coming, he's going to reign over the nations from Jerusalem. And the first nation he's going to reach out to, Egypt. And in those days, Egypt's, Egyptians will worship Christ. They will build a highway from Egypt to Jerusalem so they can come worship Jesus at his feet. They can come worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. And that's coming at his second coming. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, what I want you to do with this passage, I want you to marvel that in his humanity you have a sympathetic high priest in Jesus Christ. He was tempted like you were. He needed protection like you do. He needed those to care for him. He was weak in his humanity. He was frail in his humanity. He was needy in his humanity. And we see how God cares for him. And secondly, I want you to marvel at his divinity and see how powerful of a display it is that all of Scripture is fulfilled in the eternal Son of God. Lord, we're grateful that out of Egypt you called your son. There's no mistaking who Jesus Christ is. Descended from Adam, descended, or descended from Eve, descended from Abraham, descended from David, now rescued from the wilderness in Egypt. Out of Egypt you called your son. We see the full color of scripture alive in Jesus Christ. We're grateful that we're not saved through a nation, but through a person, an eternal person. We're not saved through one man's weakness, but through one man's perfections. We're saved the perfect life of Jesus Christ and his perfect death on the cross. We give you thanks for that. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. And now for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us today. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to meet you personally at Emmanuel Bible Church. Our service times and other church information is on our website at ibc.church. If you want information about the Master's Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been an encouragement to you, and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. May the Lord bless you.